as you can see, we're going to be sharing around the communion table today. We've been doing, working on this study on church dynamics. And how many times have we done studies on communion? Which I always think is actually a very appropriate thing to do because it never hurts us to go back and review uh, what communion really is about. And so um, you, actually have a, you actually have a worksheet today. No, let me turn this. There, there we go. There, can you see that a little bit better? <laughs> Before it was like, well, that was kind of small print, and I tried to make this as fairly large. Um, so you have a worksheet that we're going to go through, and we're going to be adding some, some material here, helping us think through um, what, what's involved in communion? What are we doing? And we're going to answer a couple of different questions as we look at this today. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, the first place we're going to start, obviously, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I shouldn't say that's obvious. I know lots of churches where they don't go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, they go over to one of the Gospels. And we are going to refer to a couple of the Gospels as we're going through this. But if you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to go through verse 17. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 17. We're going to go through this before we get into the first part of the Lordian table today. It says, Now in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together, I hear that, come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there, for it, indeed there have to be then factions or heresies among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine or faithful, real in this. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. That's the way you have this. We, if you sometimes listen to maybe me, maybe others maybe talk about this, they might use the term Lordian. Not very common to hear it use that, and we're going to explain that in just a minute. The Lordian Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What, do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you in this matter? I do not commend you. So the first question we're going to ask up there is, um, there it is, why do we say Lordian rather than Lord's table? Why do we do that? And it really comes down to the fact that we have a different word here. And you can look on, on your um, outline there that you can see this word, and I'll just write it in, in uh, English to make it easy for you. That's an R. Kuriu. And that ending on there, that ending that looks like an O and a U. Well, this is an O and U because I'm writing it in English. That is in Greek. You have to become a scholar here. No, you don't. But that's a genitive. And it means, it means belonging to or maybe characterized by. Okay? Is what the idea is. So you might add that. There's two things. It can be descriptive or it can be belonging. I mean, when you say that that's my Bible, that's kind of describing your Bible, right? Because it's describing it in terms of belonging to me. But the other word that we have here, that we're, that, and this is the word that we actually have in our text here, is the word kuriakos. Kuriakos. Now you can see the first part of this word's the same with this part here. This is an R. Remember, Tim butchered that really bad. This part, and that's a term for Lord or Master. Then this down here, this akas ending, this is an adjective ending. This is not a noun. This word up here, this is a noun. 
This is not. This, is an, this word down here is an adjective. It, it means characterized by. So this is the table we might say that's about the Lord. And that's why Paul uses this. It's not the table that belongs to the Lord, which is kind of the idea. If I would have asked uh, one of the young people here today, if I would have asked Kylie and said, hey, when you look at Lord's table, what do you think Lord's? Lord with apostrophe S. What do you normally think that means? Belongs to him. Isn't that kind of what we learn when we take English? But that's not, that's not what Paul is actually saying here. He's saying here that it's actually, and we'll put this over here, it's about him. It's a table that's about him. Okay? So this is an adjective that he uses here. We only have it used two times in the New Testament. It's used here, and it's used over in Revelation chapter 1 when John says, I was in spirit on the Lordian day, or a day that's about the Lord. Okay? So there's the first thing we're talking about here. And I already gave you the words kurios, or kuriu and kuriakos. You don't have to write any of that. The only thing you might want to add is just put, it, put out there at the end that that's a, a noun. You might want to put an N out there or just write the word noun and say it's a genitive noun. Maybe I, you go back and go, I don't know what that means, genitive noun, but you probably know what a noun is. Whereas the second one, we have the word, we have adjective there, and I think you'll be able to remember that. So that's why we call that. Now, you, you know what? We're not going to kick you out of church if you say Lord's table. I probably won't even have a throwdown over it. I won't arm wrestle you. I, I'm, I'm just trying to explain to you what he means by, or why we sometimes say Lordian, because you're trying to take the word Lord and turn it into an adjective. Okay, And so that's why we do that. Everybody has that part? Okay. Now, we come down here to the next part. Why do we sometimes call it communion? Now, I'm going to ask you, does anybody know why we sometimes refer to this as communion? In fact, there's a lot of churches, they refer to this as communion for specific reasons. There's a certain reason. What? What is it? It's fellowship, Stan tells us. Turn back to chapter 10. Flip over a page in your Bible, maybe like me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, go to verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a sharing or a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a fellowship or a sharing in the body of Christ? So the word communion is just a way of representing our word fellowship. Now, there are sacramental churches. We're not a sacramental church. A sacramental church would be like Catholics. And there are some Protestants that are marginally sacramental. And communion is a big deal for them because, as we're going to talk about here in the next thing, they have a different view of what communion does. Okay? Everybody has that part. So fellowship. We're sharing in the body and blood of Christ in one way or another. Now we go down here and we're going to ask the next question. Why do we call them? This is we. As, as Baptists, we use this. I'm sure there's non-Baptists that use this term too. But we call these ordinances. Baptism and the Lord's Supper or the Lordian table, we call these ordinances. We don't call them sacraments. The Catholic Church calls them sacraments and some Protestant churches refer to them as sacraments. Now what's the difference? Well, the word ordinance is actually a word for a, whoops, 
tap out of there, is the word rule. That's the idea. You think about when you look at the, the Washington state law code, they have ordinances in force. And so those are part of the things that make up the laws. And so people look at the, an ordinance as something that the Lord established as a, as a practice. This is the way it's supposed to be done. So therefore, it's an ordinance. I don't know that I would actually say it's a rule. I would say rather that Jesus says this is something you should be doing. But I don't think he's going to say, but this is the law. You got to do it that way. But just trying to make it clear. Whereas we talk about a sacrament, what we're talking about is a, and you probably can see this in the first part of the word sacrament, that we're talking about it was something that they consider sacred. But most churches, almost all churches that are sacramental or that hold to the idea of sacraments, they say that these are means, does anybody know what the next part of it? Means of, actually they don't call it salvation. They say means of grace means of grace it's the way that you get grace but guess what <laughs> in some cases like with baptism that giving of the grace in baptism is what makes it possible for you to get saved that's not true that's not biblical that's part of a sacramental theology catholic churches specifically hold to that with regard to baptism but there are even protestant churches that are this way that they think every time you take these elements God is giving you some grace. God is giving you, you're taking in some of the grace of God. It's a symbol that shows God is giving you some grace to be able to do something. Okay. Now, there are three views when you come to these ordinances here. And we're just going to think about these for just a second. And I didn't really leave a place for you to put these on there. But if you hold to an ordinance, we say that when we take these things, we are... Flipping your Bibles just to answer this question, turn to chapter 11 again. Back over to chapter 11. And I want you to look in verses 24 and 25. And in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 11, see if you can answer this question. He says the same thing in both passages, that there's something that these two share in common. What? Remembrance. So for us, this is for us to remember. What are we remembering, by the way? What does he say? You do this in remembrance of me. So in some way, we remember Christ. Okay? We use our... I always cheat. Use the key, the first letter in the title, Christ. They, you have that in some of the old Greek, uh, Greek manuscripts. But when we come to sacraments, there's two other views. Okay, and I don't know if you've ever been through these, but I'm just going to write these up here. There is a view called transubstantiation, and I probably butchered it in spelling it, but I tried to sound it out. So transubstantiation. Oh, I got it. And then the other view is consubstantiation. I don't know if you can even read my handwriting there. The difference between those two, the transubstantiation, the first one, that's a Catholic view. And I don't know if you guys know this, but Catholics believe that when you eat that, when you take that bread and you drink the wine, that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ in you. And the wine literally becomes Christ's blood in you. Which, 
when we were growing up, you know, as kids, and we were taught this, this was a big deal in Baptist churches to be taught. This is what communion really is, and we're not stupid Catholics because there's not enough of the body of Christ or blood of Christ to go around for all the millions of Christians that have taken it. The Catholics don't have a problem with that because they look at it as an infinite, as an infinite grace. But I'm just trying to tell you, that's what that is. But the Bible never actually says that this becomes, he says this is, and then he says, it's something you're doing in remembrance of me. Consubstantiation is a, is a held, view held by some Protestants, Lutherans in particular, that whereas Luther said, well, it doesn't become the body and blood of Christ, but the body and blood of Christ are present in there. Now, there's something that both of these views, transubstantiation and consubstantiation, have. They have a problem. And both of them, neither one of them understand what communion is really about. That's really what it comes down to. Because they think communion is about getting grace, but it's not. We looked at two key verses. This is something you're doing in remembrance of him, and it's something that we saw over in chapter 10. What are you doing with regard to the body and blood? Okay, he says that here, but back in chapter 10, we already looked at the word. We put it up above. You're doing what? No, back in chapter 10, not in chapter 11. We're fellowshipping. It's about fellowship. And not fellowshipping by eating his bread or eating his meat and drinking his blood. It's by fellowshipping because we are fellowshipping together. And we're going to take a look at this in just a minute. Well, let's go back over to... Ch no, we're going to look at it in just a minute. Let's keep this... Keep on target here. Okay. So what are the two parts of the table? What are the two parts of the table? You guys all know this. What's the first part we take? The bread. Okay. That's the first part of the table. The second part of the table is the cup. It's very interesting that Jesus and uh, Jesus and Paul here both emphasize the cup. In fact, if you look in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11, it says, For I receive from the Lord. So where did Paul get this information about communion? From the Lord. This isn't the other apostles didn't even sit down and say, hey, when we had that last meal with Jesus in that upper room before he was crucified, this is what he told us. Now, maybe they did tell him that at some time or another, but Paul actually received the real information about this. His first instruction was actually from the Lord himself. The Lord appeared to him. And we have a number of passages where Paul indicates that the Lord appeared to him. It tells us over in Galatians chapter 1, he says, where did I get my gospel? I didn't get it from people. I got it directly from the Lord. He tells us it was from the Lord gave him his, the gospel that Paul proclaimed. Okay, So we have these two elements uh, that we're talking about. Let's go to verse 23 then. Follow on. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I have passed unto you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And having given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body in your place. He says, this is my what? Body. He says, this is my body. And then he uses a preposition in the Greek, which means to be like a substitute. Now, there's, we're going to take a look at this here in just a moment, that there is um, two parts to this substitute that we're going to be looking at here in just a minute. But the first part has to do with the body. I want you to, well, 
we're going to save that. I keep, I keep getting ahead of myself. I want to jump there right now. And I'm like, no, I've got that note written down below here that I want to tackle. What does the cup then represent? What does he say? Let's go to verse 20, uh, 25. And in the same manner, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup... By the way, this, if you look at this, this looks like this is just boom, boom. Like they, 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 took the, they took the bread and then they took the cup. Because that's the way we do it, right? But it says he took the cup after the supper. So the bread was something that he broke during the meal and did this. And then after they got done eating the supper, which the supper that they were doing was... Does anybody remember? Passover, at the end of the Passover supper, then he takes the bread and does this, So he's, or takes the cup, excuse me. So in like manner, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup then is the, what? New covenant. New covenant in or by means of my blood. You do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the cup is the what? New covenant. Now, I have been in churches where there is very little emphasis on the cup, despite the fact that Paul is very clear here, despite the fact that Luke tells us this over in Luke chapter 22, and keep your finger in your Bible if you have one of those, if you have the phone, don't worry about it, just go over to Luke chapter 22. By the way, who was Luke? He was what? He was a physician. What's Luke's relationship to the Apostle Paul? Does anybody know? He was his doctor for a while, but he was his travel mate. They were traveling companions. You go to, you go to Acts chapter 16, and the, the account in the book of Acts goes from, and he and they, and he and they, and he and they, to, and we. And it's right about the place, by that area where where Luke joins, where we have the we section, it's right in an area where there was a very famous back then medical school. I'm sure that it wouldn't be considered a medical school today by our modern standards, but it was nonetheless a medical school where they trained doctors. And so it's very likely that Luke was in this area where he had received his training and was probably working, and he meets Paul. And we don't know if he got saved then or if he got saved from, from contact on a previous, on the, Paul's first missionary journey, but one, one way or another, Luke joins them. And he travels with Paul. In fact, there's to me something that's very telling about Luke, that I think Paul, or Luke really learned from Paul, really, really learned from Paul. And we're not going to go demonstrate it right now, but if you go to the book of Acts, and when Paul has made up his mind that he is going to go down to Jerusalem for this feast, this Jewish feast, and who tells him not to go? Who, first of all, most importantly, tells him not to go? The Holy Spirit. But Luke includes himself saying, and we were begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. He includes himself. He was among those that were like, Paul, don't go. The Spirit tells you not to go. Don't go. It Luke's among them, which tells me I think Luke understood what God wanted for Paul, even though Paul kind of stubbornly said, hey, don't break my heart. I'm going to do this. I'm going to... Anyway, so Luke really understood things. So in Luke chapter 22, with that as just reminding ourselves about, about him, I want us to go back up to verse, uh, let's go to verse 19. And having taken bread, he gave thanks, broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is for you. You do this in remembrance of me. And the cup 
in a similar way after the supper saying, this cup is a new covenant by my blood in being poured out or gushed out in place of you. That word that's translated poured out or gushed out, that's not always used about blood, by the way. I just went through some examples yesterday why it's used of the Spirit being poured out or given to us in Romans chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter says, oh, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on you just as on us at the beginning when he's in the household of Cornelius. So it's used that way. So I'm just trying to help you understand that that word poured out doesn't always just mean like somebody's dying and blood's coming out of them. But in this case, he says, it is my, it, he says, this new covenant is by my blood, which is poured out on behalf of you. So I wanted you to see this in two ways, because when he's talking about this new covenant, Luke says the same thing that Paul does. He just adds one little detail. He adds this verb in here that's being poured out in your place. But he tells us about this new covenant. So here we have the body and we have the new covenant in these two things. And the new covenant is by the blood. Now I started saying something earlier and I kind of got a little sidetracked here talking about Luke in this. A lot of churches I've been in space place very little emphasis on the fact that both Luke and Paul talk about the cup. Most of them focus on the wine in the cup or grape juice in our case here but they focus on that, that stuff that's in there because that's the blood of Christ. And that's more important than, than the cup because this is all about eating Jesus' flesh and drinking Jesus' blood so we get grace or we're ministered in something because they treat it as a sacrament. But if you handle it biblically is what he says, it's something you're doing in remembrance of him. And you're remembering something, he says here, with regard to the body, and something with regard to this new covenant. And it is by his blood. So we come down here to this next question. What does sharing in the Lordian table do? What does it do? Well, let's go back over there to the book of Luke, or 1 Corinthians, pardon me. 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we've already asked, yes, I've got magic fingers, I guess. I don't know. No idea. But we, we already looked at the first one here. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 25. What does, do, what does partaking of the Lordian table do? Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night that he was betrayed took bread, and giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is in your place. You do this in remembrance of me. In like manner, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant by my blood. You do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what's the first thing we can say that happens or one of the reasons that we share communion or the Lordian table? Said two times. We already talked about it. We're remembering. We're remembering. Two times, he says, we are remembering. Um, right now, Jim is teaching a class downstairs on God the Father. I'm enjoying this. Because he's doing stuff on God the Father that I have not done. 
because I've taught on God the Father, but I've taught, I've taken a different tact, not in disagreement. I just didn't cover any of this stuff that he's covering. And so I'm benefiting from this. Now, why do I bring that up? Because normally when we're here in church, if I get up or Jim gets up or Josh gets up or Ben gets up or one of you teaches a class, there's a really good chance that you're going to be teaching something that somebody's already heard. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Now, you probably, some of you probably have not heard this study on God the Father that Jim's doing because, well, like I said, I haven't taught it. And if somebody else has, I've missed out on it. Okay. I missed it. But, when, but is there something wrong with us repeating things that we've taught before or taking another tack? No. And we even looked at that last week when we were talking about the importance of God's word that Peter says, even though you know this and are established in this, I'm going to keep stirring up your, your memories about this. And part of his goal is, he says, so that when I'm gone, you'll still remember it. <laughs> See? I, have a, I have a professor that passed away 16 years ago now, I believe it was. And he hadn't taught for a while. I haven't sat under him in terms of a, a teacher for probably closer to 20 years. Uh, but you know what? And I could ask Josh this question. Can you still hear some of the things that he taught you ringing in your head sometimes? Mm -hmm. You come to some passages and you can hear his voice saying, do anybody have teachers like that from your past? People that have taught you that taught that? Jennifer sat for 18 years under her dad. You probably got a lot of things that you come across verses and you can hear your dad's voice. You know, I bet a lot of you have sat under different teachers over the years and you can hear them teaching. There's a reason that we go over things and there's a reason that we repeat things and it's exactly what Peter says because we quickly forget. This church, what did we see? And we've read some opening verses today that Paul says, when you guys get together, everything's good, right? Is that what Paul said? No, he says, it's not for the good. It's, for, it's not for the better. It's for the worse. You guys are saying this is all about fellowship, but it's not about fellowship. It's all about you. Isn't that what he's saying? And yet being part of the body of Christ is not all about you. It's about us. And when we come and share this, Part of, one of the key facts, and this again is one of those things where I think if, they, if people don't properly understand what communion is about, this remembering doesn't always make as much sense to everybody in the same way. Because when most people think that we do this in remembrance of him, probably the closest thing we get to is thinking about what? Give me an idea here. You're remembering me because what? Yeah. Remembering that he died. It's kind of like... Um, I grew up in a, in a family that I think, as far back as I can remember, almost every Memorial Day, we were either at my grandparents' north or my grandparents' south. <laughs> and we would go around and we would spend Memorial Day going around and putting flowers on the graves of grand, great-grandparents and relatives and such like that. Do you guys, any of you ever do this? Yeah? And, so, and you're remembering those paintings. Because it's called Memorial Day, Remembering Day, okay, is what people are doing. And so people immediately go that way. But here's a question. Is our Jesus Christ, is our Lord dead? Is our Lord dead? No. That was pretty sad. Is our Lord dead? No. no. There should be a resounding no on that. Absolutely not. That, you know, as, as important as the death of Christ is, his resurrection is by when the apostles talk about his, 
what he did, the resurrection is almost more important in the way they emphasize it. That we have a living Savior. So we're not remembering him as just dead. We may be remembering what he did, but we're also remembering him as alive. Is it easy? I'm not asking for anybody to show hands and confess here to this mess, to the way we think or to operate, but do any of you get so busy in your day doing stuff that you can go through a good portion of the day without really stopping to think, I have a living Savior sitting at the Father's right hand right now. Sadly, even I, as a pastor, can get so wrapped up in certain things that that doesn't always, it's not running through my mind on a regular basis. And I'm not trying to say that to Seamus. I'm just saying, when Paul says here, you, and Jesus said to do this in remembrance of me, I think he anticipated the fact that life gets busy, life gets crazy, and we need some things to remind us. And this is one opportunity. The second thing that happens when we do this is in uh, verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So we proclaim. Now let me ask you a question. When we share communion, I don't know, maybe we have, I don't ever remember doing it since I've been here, do we take this stuff and do we go out and sit out on the street here so everybody driving by can see what we're doing? Have we ever gone down this at the city park on a Sunday and done communion down there? We're not doing it today. We're not doing it today, no. Oh, come on, you're an Iowan. You should be able to handle it. Yeah. Just as an aside, I remember when I used to love it being this cold. I, that, that is past. <laughs> anyway, back to the main thing. We, so to whom are we proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes? To each other. It's a way that we are helping remind each other. Is it just that Jesus died? Is that what we're just saying? Oh, Jesus died. Until he comes. Until he comes. But, but, but let's put that on hold for just a second. Are we just saying Jesus died? Because what, what's the significance of the death? It's what he did. He bore our sins. That's right. He suffered in our place. <clears throat> so I want to take a look here. When we stop and think about this, we're, what we're really doing here is we're doing this to us. We're doing this to us. This is pro proclaiming to us. But I want to look at some things, and I want to consider these uh, in terms of... Um, we're proclaiming the Lord's death, and I want to think about these terms in, in terms of, and I think, did I put it down here? Past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus says, Take, eat, this is my body, which is in your place. Verse 24, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself bore or carried our sins in his own body on the tree in order that we, having died to sins, we might live to righteousness by whose wounds we are healed. One of the things we do when we take communion is we do remember that, that you and I share a common salvation because in the past, our Lord actually suffered and bore our sins in his body. We are remembering that. That's the, that's the initial part of this. First Peter, oh, let's put this up here. First Peter, for those of you who don't have that, First Peter 2.24. 
So we're remembering, so we're looking past. Now turn back over to 1 Corinthians and let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to go to verse 17. Well, let's go like actually the end of verse 16 because of the way it's worded. It says, let's just read all of verse 16. It says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a sharing in common in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because, and we've been over this many times, one bread, one body, we the many are. In other words, or to put it in English, we the many are one bread, one body. So we're remembering in the present, we would put here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16b and 17, that Jesus Christ, because in that body, what, what did he do after he died? He rose again. And where is he right now? At the Father's right hand. And is he sitting up there as a spook? No. He's sitting there in a, in a real human body. He's sitting at the Father's right hand in a real human body. And because of that, you and I are in him. Right? Now, he doesn't say that here. Turn over to chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 16. I said 16, verse 13, chapter 12, verse 13. I don't know what I was talking about. Verse 13, for also by one spirit we all have been baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. And we're going to stop there. The last part is a different, different matter. But it says we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. We were baptized into Christ. We know that from, well, it tells us that right here. We're put into Christ. So we are remembering then not only that Christ died. Most Christians, when they take communion, they never get past that first one. All they think about with the body of Christ and the blood of Christ is his dying on the cross. But we're proclaiming things that are effects of that, that he bore our sins in the past. That's taken care of. He's now ascended, and in that body, he's seated at the Father's right hand. And we're remembering that he's there and that we're now part of that body. In fact... Can anybody tell me where are your sins forgiven according to Scripture? How does God apply the forgiveness of sins to you? That when Christ bore our sins in his body, how does he apply that to you? That's what you do. How does God actually apply that to you? He sees you in Christ. Let's go over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, In whom, that is in Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He applies what Christ did on the cross. He applies that to us by putting us in Christ. And so you can add down there below that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. Oh, I need to go up a little bit? Okay. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. There we go. So we have this forgiveness of sins applied to us. But now we have one last part of this. Have any of you ever been together with all the entire body of Christ yet? In Christ, God sees us that way. But have you ever actually seen all the other people? Talked with them? Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. 
<clears throat> and I'm not going to make a big case for this this morning. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 5. And if we go, uh, let's go to verse 8. Romans, or Revelation 5 verse 8. It says, and when he received the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders be fell before the lamb. And then he switches and he uses here a masculine, each one having a harp and golden bowls. The four living beings are neuter in the Greek. He uses a masculine here because he's referring to us. When you mix genders in Greek and you refer to, like in, in Spanish, if you talk about men and women in Spanish, you always use a masculine gender. You never refer to men and women in a feminine gender. But in Greek, if you mix genders, you speak in the neuter. But he doesn't speak in the neuter here. He says here at the in verse 8, each one having a harp and a gold, uh, gold bowl full of this incense, that is in the masculine. He's referring not to the spirit beings, but he's referring to us. We all fall, but we, the elders here, we're the ones that actually have these bowls, which are the prayers of the saints and and are singing, again, that's the elders. This is what the elders are doing, which is representative of the church. Again, I'm not making a case for it right now. Uh, and they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals of it, because you were slain and you've purchased, and there are some Greek manuscripts that have us, some of them leave it out, but you have purchased us to God by your blood from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you have made them, referring to us, uh, for God a kingdom, even priests. Isn't that what we are? Aren't we a kingdom of priests? Doesn't the scriptures refer to us as priests? Yes. And we will reign over the earth. Not on the earth, but over the earth. There is a day coming in which all the things that divide believers from believers. I don't get together with you because you guys, guys baptize babies. Well, we baptize babies because we think it puts them in under the covenant thing, but we don't think it saves them. Well, it doesn't make any difference. I'm not going to call you brother because of that. Right? And we have these problems. In fact, I had, I had, a, I had a, a, a brother in Christ doesn't attend church here come by the other day, asked me a question. One of the questions is, is, is what do you do when you have other believers, people that are clear on the gospel, and they get into these other side issues, and they're really off. And I just said, you know what? When you have a believer that you can share 99% doctrinal agreement on, you have this really tight, close fellowship. And then maybe that person, maybe you run into another brother, and they have like 10% less in common with you in terms of their, what they hold. You have fellowship, but it's just a little bit looser. And I said, then you have further, and that's what it is. I've got brothers, I've got brothers in Christ that have some really divergent views on doctrine. I would not attend their church. I might visit to just say hi, but I don't think I'd actually, I would never choose to attend that church on a regular basis because they are very divergent from where we are. But they believe the gospel for salvation alone. And there's a day coming in which all of us are going to be gathered. And we're all going to stand there. And this isn't the only place we have this in Scripture, but we're all going to sing there together. And we're not going to be sitting there going, we're not going to be sitting there going, hey, all you guys who were all Bill, and you didn't believe in the rapture? Ha ha! We're not going to be doing that. We're not going to care. We're just going to stand there so amazed at what Jesus Christ did and what we all share in common. We're not going to care that we were right and they were wrong. 
Or in some cases, maybe they were right and I was wrong. I recognize that. That's a possibility with some things. And we're all going to be united and we're going to share that. So I would add here that there's a future aspect of this and then we can put this Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10. There's, I know I'm taking probably longer than I was planning on this, but I do want you to see this. Go to John 17. John chapter 17. And look with me at verse... Let's go to verse 21. Like we should really go to verse 20 because this is where you and I come in. Not concerning these only. In other words, I'm not, he's talk, this is Jesus praying to the Father and he says, I'm not asking just for these 11 guys only, but also for those who believe in me through their words. That's us, right? We believe through their words. In order that they all might be one thing, even as you, Father, are one thing, uh, 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 even as you... Father, are in me and I in you, that they also might be one thing in us, that the world might believe that you sent me. That's not going to happen now. Christians think that Jesus asked that. Every prayer Jesus asked for is answered. And it's never answered, wait on that. It's never. No, he gets his answer. This is talking about a future request that he has for the body of Christ, that there's a time coming in the future in which the body of Christ is going to be everything it's supposed to be. We are one. The body of Christ, not very long into its history, ceased to be one. It ceased to be riddled with division. Look at in, in Corinth, in that very church that where the communion is written to. He says there are heresies or factions, divisions right there among you. And there were differences of opinion on how certain things operated. And he didn't say, well, they're not Christians. They're not Christians because they don't agree with me. He says, no, you guys need to start thinking right. And so we can put down here, this is again a promise. And the world's going to believe that. The world is going to stand there and watch us with Christ as we stand with him and we are united. We're not a bickering, fighting church, but we're a united church. And they're going to say, look at what he did with those people up there. And they're going to believe, if you look there at the end of this, um, that the world might believe that you sent me. And it is, a, it is a real fact that there are times that you hear people say, you really believe in Jesus Christ? Then why, is the, then why don't you go to church with those people? Why don't you go to church with those people? Why do you have all these different churches? See, because they, 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 they're able to put this together. They're able to think about that. But you know there's a time coming when we are united and they're actually going to believe that God really did send the Son. And this is repeated again just down below there. So we can add down here to that John chapter 17. And we can put down their key, the key verse there is verse 21. So, you see, there's a past, a present, and a future to proclaiming the Lord's death with his body. In his body, he bore our sins. In his body, he sits at the Father's right hand, and we are in him. And there is a future time in which, as the body of Christ, he will stand with us. We will, or we should say, we will stand with him, and we will all be united. We really will function like that one body of Christ for which he suffered. The last part of this one, then, is the cup. We're proclaiming again. The whole question is, we're proclaiming the Lord's death till he come. We've already seen, we've already seen that, is, that this cup, we, if we look to the past, and we could put down again what we looked at, Luke chapter 22, in the past, in verse 20, that that cup, that his blood was poured out. But turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. And when you get there, go to verse 28. 
Matthew 26, 28 says, for this, for this is the blood of the covenant. He's referring to the wine in there, which is poured out, same word that Luke uses, but he adds one other thing, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So we can add here to the Luke, we can add Matthew. I've got so much stuff up there. This is the way my handwritten notes look like sometimes, guys. So you're just living with Tim's handwritten notes. This is what happens when I write notes on a paper beside, on my desk when I'm working on such. But it has to do, this also, like him bearing our sins on his body, this also has to do with that it's being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So Matthew 26, 28. Matthew 26, 28. But there's also another benefit to this, and we already saw this in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, which you should write that down then. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Peg says I need to go up. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that we fellowship, we share in this. But I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And there's two verses in here that we're going to sit on for just a minute. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. It says, who also, in verse 6, who also has made us competent or sufficient ministers by, uh, from a new kind of covenant, not one of the letter, but from the Spirit, for the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. Part of what happens by the death of Christ and by the shedding of his blood is that he inaugurated, not only provided for the forgiveness of our sins, but also provided the means of initiating a new covenant. And in that new covenant, the Spirit, he says at the end of verse 6, gives us life. Now jump down to verse 18. Verse 18. For we all now, with an unveiled face, we are reflecting as a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Spirit of the Lord. You and I have the privilege, because of that new covenant, of actually showing forth His glory, His reputation. And I'm just going to say, in a nutshell, a key part of that is how you and I live out life together. Does everybody get that? When we take that cup, we are saying, yes, by that blood poured out, I have my sins forgiven. But the cup, the new covenant that was initiated by shedding of that blood, I actually now have life. And part of that life isn't just that I get to live, it's that I get to live with you. And he's making it possible for me to live with you and not punch you in the mouth every time you say something that I don't like to hear or stomp out away, but to actually live with you in harmony and actually learn what it is to rather than be selfish to lay down my life for you and vice versa, right? And I say that again because we go back to the Corinthian letter. And this is writing to the Corinthians and these are people that aren't getting along. And they need to remember this. And I suspect if they needed to remember it, we do too. I don't think our church is as bad as the Corinthian church was. But that doesn't mean we don't need to be reminded of these things. I would also then add at the end of this the same thing we already looked at. I would just draw arrows from, from Revelation 17. And, or Re John 17, I'm sorry. And Revelation 5 that we just did up here under the cup. I would just take these two here 
and I would just draw an arrow down there that that's the present aspect. In other words, just like all of our salvation, even communion has different aspects. Go back to here, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're just about done here. Hopefully having you fill in some blanks has kept you more awake today as we were talking about these things. But however, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I went to Romans 11. I was like, that verse doesn't look right. Romans, First Corinthians chapter 11, we'll get the right verse. Verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming, again, to whom? Each other. Each other. You're proclaiming the Lord's death. What are you doing? In each of these, you're proclaiming the effects of the death. What it did in the past by bearing sins, what it does in the present by being applied to us in terms of who we are in Christ and who we are with this new covenant, and points us even that we're pointing to looking to the future, which he says, until he comes. Peggy jumped the gun on me here a few minutes ago when she said that, which is where we wanted to get to. This also makes us look forward. There are people that have been in this church that aren't here anymore. They died. The Lord took them home. I miss them. Some of you miss them terribly more probably than I do because of your ties. We're all going to be united with them. There's people that aren't here with us because God moved them away. I would, I, would, I would love anything if God would say, I want Andrew and Denali back here in Royal City. I'd love that if that's what God said. But I'm absolutely convinced, especially when you talk with Andrew, that God took him down there for a reason. And I just disagree with God. No, I don't. <laughs> no, that's, that's where they're supposed to be. That's where they're supposed to be. There's believers that have left, maybe for reasons that aren't the best reasons, because I don't know. But you know what? Whatever the situation, there's a time coming. We're looking to the future when we're going to be united with not just those people that have been here before us, people that have passed away, people that God's taken to other places. But we're going to be united with all the believers even ones we've never met, ones that live on the other side of the world, and ones that generations ago have already gone on, shall we say, to, to what God has for them in between. I hope this was a good exercise in us stopping and thinking, walking through some of the elements of past, present, and future when we're looking at the death of Christ. The death of Christ is not just a past event. It's a past event that has activities from the past, things in the present, things in the future. Now, I didn't ask anybody to help me today, but I'm going to ask if Ben, Josh, and Jim, if the three of them would help us pass out our elements today. <coughs> I was going to give all these guys warning ahead of time, and then I did not do so. Okay. And what we're going to do, Josh, if you can just kind of go right here. So if you take that down the middle and pass it down that way, you guys can run the outside. And we're going to, while, while we are um, doing that, um, we're going to sing a little bit. We're going to sing the song, uh, Bless Be the Tithe. I should have looked it up because I didn't think, but most of you got cups in your hand. You probably don't want to do that. But we're going to sing the song, Bless Be the Tithe. We sing it a lot at communion. But uh, 
church where um, Kurt and Christina attend. Um, we attended church with them one weekend, and this, they do communion. pass everything all, all, all at once. And I was like, well, that, that uh, allows us not to rush communion, but allows us to spend less time doing all of the passing out. Uh, passing out our life. Oh. <laughs> Please don't pass out. Please don't pass out. <laughs> Review, we've spent the whole hour here talking about what these elements are. Body of Christ, representative of his physical body that took our place, now is in heaven, and we are part of that. And it tells us that he gave thanks, and then we ate all of it, so we're going to give thanks. Father, we are thankful for your plan, providing for us perfect sacrifice, but that that sacrifice now lives that he is one that sits at your right hand, and because of he's there, you count all of us to be in him as part of the body. And we thank you for this thing. Amen. Eat all of it. did this in a circle because I like you looking at the other parts of the body face on rather than back in each other's heads so but that's just a preference on my I always get to see your faces so after the dinner then it says he took the cup the cup itself representing the new covenant the juice or the wine inside representing his blood that was poured out poured out for the forgiveness of sins but also poured out that it might initiate this new covenant by which he dwells in us by which we have life by the Spirit, so that you and I can actually function and live like we're part of the body that we just remembered taking in the bread. Father, we are thankful for the sacrifice, the design and plan that you not only would put us in a body, but you would give us the means of actually functioning and acting like we're really part of the body of Christ. And we're thankful for this, and we look forward to the day in which the body of Christ will be completely united before you as we join in singing, praising the worth your worth and the worth of the Son. And we would thank you for this sin. Amen. And call her. And everybody knows what we do now, right? One of my favorite parts of communion. We're all going to circle up. We should maybe circle up closer. It's so cold.
remember we're working. Because we're going to be singing. There we go. This is what happens when you have a few people that are out sick and such. So, okay. We're going to sing, I'm so glad. This is the chorus. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the mountain, cleansed by his blood, joined heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. For I'm part of the family, the family of so very